Okay, uh, welcome once again to another Throttle Up Radio Show and Podcast, and I'm your host, Captain Kevin Smith, and I am glad to be here. And I am with my great audio engineer, and she's keeping track of everything, make sure I don't make any big mistakes, uh, which is possible, which I do from time to time. Anyway, welcome to this another show. And... Um, also, um, Merry Christmas to all of you out there uh, listening, either on Red State Talk Radio. We are a radio show on the weekends on Red State Talk Radio. We're also a podcast, and we are available on all podcast platforms that I am aware of. I think it's most of them, if not all of them. Okay, so, and we do mostly weekly, once in a while... Uh, we skip a week because of, um, you know, that's just the way the world is. That's just the way everything is in our lives. Sometimes unpredictable things come up. And uh, other times, you know, ho- holiday events uh, where we we will be out and about, sometimes visiting family. And so it's not every week, but almost every week throughout the year, we have a new podcast and a new radio show. Okay, this one, this show is uh, entitled Masters of the Year, and the reason for that is because of the upcoming, what is it, a series? It's a mini-series, isn't it? Yeah. It's a mini-series about uh, the um, air combat campaign in Europe, particularly at the latter stages of the European theater during World War II, uh, the um, air campaign, the bomber campaign was uh, rather fascinating, uh, and it should be known by all Americans what actually went on there, and this, uh, is it a mini-series, mini-series, Masters of the Air, uh, it's going to be right after the, the holidays, right? January. In January, okay, so it comes up. On January, I think it should be required <laughs> uh, required for all Americans to uh, to see it because uh, if these folks didn't succeed, who knows what would happen in the course of human events and human history on planet Earth? It could have been desire uh, consequences, dire consequences, without without question serious things would have occurred that we would not have liked, not have appreciated, and we would like to avoid at all cost. Okay, so we're going to start off the show with a, uh, is there any other administrative things I need to talk about? We talked about the, no? Okay. Well, I'm just back from, uh, did I mention that, uh, my uh, talk at Johns Hopkins? last week. Anyway, so I'm just back from a speaking engagement at Johns Hopkins University. Happens to be uh, right outside of uh, Baltimore, Maryland, actually. Uh, And so we went out there for a talk uh, and a uh, conference as well. Uh, It was kind of uh, enjoyable and uh, enlightening, educational. And so I did speak at that uh, university. Anyway, so let's get on with the show this week. Uh, my great audio engineer is going to ask me this question as we kick off this show. Here it goes. Um, he- hello, Kevin, and um, hello to your listening audience. We are so glad that everyone is here today. Okay, the question about... Masters of the Air is an upcoming uh, TV miniseries, as you've just told everyone. Why is this important for us to know about, and why should we, as as Americans, know their story? Okay, yes. Uh, I think it's particularly important. I would say that's one of the most important things since the, since the release of uh, Top Gun Maverick. And this is probably even more consequential in terms of 
turning the course of human events, impacting directly uh, human history on the planet. And I'm going to start off by uh, <clears throat> mentioning uh, something that uh, is is in uh, is in a video actually that I'm uh, that I'm in the process of doing. Also, I, is it in my book as well? Uh, the visit to the Royal Air Force Museum. I'm I, actually I'm not sure. Anyway, Royal Air Force Museum outside of London is actually happens to be uh, north of London. Uh, you take the northern line if you're on the, they call it a tube, on the tube or subway. What do they call it? And they call it the tube. If you, if you take the northern line out of Piccadilly Circus, uh, you will you will end at the last. Um, uh, terminal, by the way, and, and right there is one of the Royal Air Force Museums. I think it's probably the main one. Anyway, if, if you go there, if you go to the Royal Air Force Museum outside of London, you walk through the door, and what are you? what is, is right in front of you, what are you, uh, more or less, uh, your, your, your view is 100% uh, attracted to uh, this display of the P-51 Mustang on a rotating pedestal. I'm not kidding. Now, why is that? Because the P-51 Mustang, more than any other single thing, uh, weapon system or person, turned the tide of the European World War II, the European camp, European War. During World War II, turned the tide and secured the defeat of the Americans and the British and our allies. It actually did. All right, now you're going to say, oh, Kevin, how could that possibly be? No, I, I meant the, 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 the secured the victory. Did I miss? Yeah, I misspoke. Yeah, thank you. Uh, secured this victory of the of the Americans and the British and our allies against the Axis powers against Germany, basically. So the P fifty one was the deciding factor. the the single that single weapon system. But there were a lot of players uh, in that that key aspect of the. Uh, the victory, the American and the British victory in World War II in the uh, European theater. It's a lot of key players, and a lot of things came together. And they're celebrating in this mini-series called Masters of the Air. We're celebrating that, uh, that important event in, uh, in warfare, that, import, that important event during the course of World War II and that important event uh, with respect to preserving our freedom and the defeat of tyranny. Okay, so what we're going to do here is we're going to start off with an um, audio-video clip that kind of like introduces exactly what's going on. Now, let me, let me set the stage a little bit here before we, before we dive into this. Uh, this subject, and, and I'm going to cover this again in a lot more detail. But the first order of business is, and, and the first thing that I I would like to point out to all of us in this time and place is is the fact that that we are fundamentally dealing with heroes. Okay, this is heroes. This is heroics on display. Uh, this is uh, heroes working at a global level, okay? And every one of the people that participated in this air campaign, flying with the 8th Air Force in uh, Europe during World War II, every single person that was associated with this is, in fact, a national hero, for sure, the the heroics were beyond belief, 
if you consider what was being faced, the adversity uh, and the lethality that was being faced, also other things uh, like uncertainty, complexity, all kinds of things, a very, very high attrition rate, very high death rate. Many, many airmen were killed. Many of them were killed on their first mission. Extremely high accident or death rate or, um, or uh, shot, shot down due to enemy fire, you name it. Uh, the loss rate was horrendous. Uh, finally, some folks came to the forefront risking their careers and came up with with uh, some pretty good solutions to a, to a major critical problem beyond belief. And that is the uh, story that uh, hopefully this uh, series will uh, discuss. Also, we'll be discussing that as well on this radio show and podcast over the coming weeks. But the first thing I'd like you to, uh, I'd like all of us really to, um, to keep in mind is, is what I call intellectual courage, also heroics. In other words, uh, every single one of these heroes deserves our admiration. And we ought to spend some time, some quiet time, in, uh, maybe, uh, maybe in the morning, uh, during our morning meditation to think about what they what they faced and and how would how would we react how would I react if I was faced with that kind of challenge would I step up and say uh, I will go I will become a uh, bomber pilot or a fighter pilot I will participate in uh, I will fly for the eighth Air Force and I will participate in World War II in the European theater, particularly over our occupied uh, Germany. So we're going to cover, uh, I've got one, two, three, four, I've got five things I'm going to be covering. First thing is heroics. Uh, second thing is the aircraft, uh, the, the, the aircraft that that secured our victory. The third thing is tactics. Uh, new tactics were brought in. The fourth thing is training, pilot training. And the fifth thing is expertise. All right, so those are the things I'm going to be talking about as we go through this um, discussion uh, during this and other um, episodes on uh, Throttle Up. So let's go ahead and roll this tape this um, this actually audio video, which you can find. The name of it is, um, let me see, How uh, the USAAF. That, that stands for the U.S. Army Air Force. That's the way it was described back then. How the USAAF 8th Air Force turned defeat into victory 1942 to 1944. Uh, let me give you a little bit of um, description or perhaps uh, add a little bit of understanding of what's going on. Uh, the Eighth Air Force was part of the uh, part of the American military, uh, par- actually part of the Army, but the but the uh, the Army Air Force uh, <coughs> became a quasi-independent organization um, operating under the um, under the command of uh, General Eisenhower in the Pacific. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Atlantic, in the in Europe, uh, in Europe. Uh, apologize for that. In in Europe. All right. There's there's a Pacific War going on at the same time, which is also something I'm covering. Uh, so, so once in a while, I get my uh, my names mixed up a little bit. But anyway, this is the uh, European War, the Eighth Air Force. So the Army Air Force be- became a quasi separate organization uh, during that period of time, and um, the Eighth Air Force um, was. 
eventually commanded by uh, Lieutenant General Jimmy Doodle. Okay, so uh, Doodle Raid uh, was an early event during the course of World War II, and you saw that on the, what was the movie that we saw that on, Midway? Was that the movie Midway that we saw on the Doolittle do Raid where he launched? Uh, Pearl Harbor. Well, I'm sorry, you're right. It was Pearl Harbor. Yeah, the movie Pearl Harbor. So we saw uh, Jimmy Doolittle, uh, his uh, raid on Tokyo off the uh, deck of the, the Hornet, USS Hornet, which is an aircraft carrier. So anyway, this, this is the same uh, Jimmy Doolittle. Now he's lieutenant general, and he has taken over uh, the 8th Air Force uh, somewhere, I, I would say, 1943-ish, I believe. And so keep that in mind. So the 8th Air Force now has a new commander, okay? And uh, that is important in uh, how the story unfolds. And so um, he was, uh, uh, I would say, significantly uh, responsible for uh, a major turn of events where we turned defeat into victory. It was a lot of people uh, uh, participated in that turnaround, but Jimmy Doolittle also was one of the major players. Okay, so let's go ahead and play this uh, audio video clip and and then we'll discuss it. Here goes. On the 14th of October 1943, 351 heavy bombers of the United States 8th Air Force left their bases in Britain and headed east, deep into Nazi Germany. Their task was to destroy the ball bearing works in the Bavarian town of Schweinfurt. However, the bomber stream was savaged by Luftwaffe fighters, which preyed upon the B-17 flying fortresses. Without any fighter escorts, the American bombers were shot out of the sky one by one. When they reached Schweinfurt, the bombing failed to cause serious damage to the ball-bearing works. Altogether, 77 B-17s were either shot down or scrapped following the mission. The heavy losses suffered by the 8th Air Force led this day to become known as Black Thursday. The debacle of Black Thursday caused a crisis in Allied High Command. The Western Allies invested vast resources into the Anglo-American Combined Bomber Offensive against Germany, which they hoped would bring the Nazi war machine to its knees. In fact, RAF Bomber Command leader Sir Arthur Harris believed that the war could be won by bombing alone, without the need for a land invasion of mainland Europe. Yet, as the bomber fleet suffered high casualty rates throughout 1943, Germany continued to put up a stiff fight. While attriting general German industry, the bomber offensive failed to critically hinder German fighter output. However, Black Thursday finally convinced the British and Americans to make necessary and in some cases long overdue changes. During the winter of 1943-44, leadership of the combined bomber offensive was overhauled and important tactical changes introduced. Furthermore, New technology would give a decisive advantage over the Luftwaffe in 1944. This video will look at how the American component of the Combined Bomber Offensive learned from initial mistakes and helped to turn the tide in the skies above Europe. The US 8th Air Force suspended unescorted daytime missions over Germany from late October 43 to February 44. Contrary to popular belief, this was as much to do with poor winter weather as it was with the losses suffered in 1943. Nonetheless, this pause allowed Allied leadership to take stock of their situation. The Commander-in-Chief of the United States Army Air Forces, General Henry Hap Arnold, had publicly boasted to the press that the 14th of October raid on Schweinfurt had been a huge success. Privately, he was horrified by the massive losses suffered by the bombers and began considering alterations to the bomber offensive. Arnold and his staff quickly concluded there were several things that could not be changed. First, the USAAF could not discontinue daytime bombing and join RAF Bomber Command in bombing solely at night. The B-17 Flying Fortress had been specifically designed to operate during daytime, and the aircrews had been trained for that same purpose. Furthermore, 
Arnold wanted to stay independent from the RAF, and continuing to bomb at daytime was the best way to avoid having to share precious resources. The second was the overall strategy behind the air campaign. At the 1943 Casablanca Conference, the Western Allies agreed that any invasion of German-occupied France would only be successful if the Luftwaffe could be neutralised. Thus, the point-blank directive was issued which guided the combined bomber offensive. By late 1943, the Luftwaffe had not been defeated. In fact, enemy fighter strength continued to grow. In 1942, German industry had produced 5,358 fighters for the entire year. By the end of the following year, this number had nearly doubled to 10,059, despite the Americans joining the Allied bombing campaign. The RAF was also similarly threatened by an increase in German night fighters. General Arnold and his staff could fix the biggest problem faced by the USAAF's daytime bombers, the lack of fighter escorts deep over German territory. Arnold had been a proponent that the Flying Fortress could defend itself against enemy interceptors, but the horrendous losses of 1943 finally convinced him that the bomber streams needed escorting fighters which could make it all the way to Germany and back. In the summer of 1943, Arnold wrote a memo to his deputy, Lieutenant General Barney Giles, with a straightforward message. Within this next six months, you have got to get a fighter to protect our bombers. Whether you use an existing type or have to start from scratch is your problem. Get to work on this right away, because by January 44, I want fighter escort for all our bombers from the UK into Germany. The Supermarine Spitfire Mark IX seemed like the perfect candidate for a long-range escort fighter. Its upgraded Merlin 61 engine, along with better drop tanks, now allowed the Spitfire to fly over 800-mile round trips. Photo reconnaissance Spitfires regularly overflew Germany from the UK, which seemingly confirmed that it could do the job of escorting bomber streams. As such, General Arnold sent a letter to Air Chief Marshal Sir Charles Portal on the 14th of October 1943, inquiring whether RAF Fighter Command could spare enough Spitfires to escort American bombers over Germany. Unfortunately, the Chief of Fighter Command was the unimaginative and frankly incompetent Air Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Mallory. Fighter Command's leading ace, Johnny Johnson, described Lee Mallory as a man who did not pretend to know about fighter tactics, despite his position. He fundamentally misunderstood the capabilities of the Spitfire. Despite evidence that it could be done, Lee Mallory was convinced that Britain's best fighter simply did not have the range to escort bombers to Germany and told Air Chief Marshal Portal to pass this message to Arnold. Furthermore, Lee Mallory had a history of zealously hoarding his fighters, refusing to even consider lending them to the Americans, and not even deploying them where they were most needed by the RAF, most notably in Malta. Luckily, a major breakthrough had been made back in the United States, which could solve the long-range escort problem. In early 1940, the British government was looking to beef up its fighter force, and asked North American Aviation, a small company in California, if they would produce P-40 Warhawks under license from the Curtis Wright Corporation. Although the Warhawk was a capable aircraft at the time, North American offered to produce a new modern fighter instead. In January 1940, the ironically German-born designer Edgar Smood drew up the first sketches of what would become the P-51 Mustang. The first prototype was produced within 130 days, and the British government was so impressed that it ordered 620 Mustangs, the first of which arrived in the UK in October of 1941. However, the early models of the P-51 had a major and fatal flaw. The Allison engine was simply not powerful enough and could not perform at higher altitudes. Therefore, the RAF mostly used the Mustang in low-level operations, while the USAAF had no interest in the aircraft. This changed in October of 1942, when Ron Harker, a test pilot for Rolls-Royce, suggested the Mustang's engine be replaced with the new British-built Rolls-Royce Merlin 61, the same engine which powered the Spitfire, which produced stunning results, and a glorious example of Anglo-American cooperation. The new and improved P-51B was now faster than the German FW-190 and BF-109 fighters at 28,000 feet and above. Furthermore, it had a faster dive speed and quicker roll rate than its counterparts, along with a tighter turn radius. 
It was cheaper to build than the P-47 Thunderbolt, which was the workhorse of the USAAF at the time. When drop tanks were added, it had a longer range than the Thunderbolt, Spitfire and P-38 Lightning, which was also being considered. On a full load of drop tanks, the P-51B could fly an astonishing 1,474 miles, meaning a round trip from eastern England to the Polish border was possible. The USAAF immediately ordered 1,350 Mustangs, but these were not ready until the summer of 1943. Finally, General Arnold realised his new sleek fighter would be a game-changer and attached all available Mustangs to the 8th Air Force. At long last, the Allies had an available fighter that could escort daylight bombing raids all the way to the target and back. As an added bonus, the Mustang could outperform anything the Luftwaffe could throw at it. Yet, General Arnold also knew the Mustang would not be a war-winning weapon unless it could be deployed properly. To see this through, Supreme Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower and Arnold decided to reshuffle and restructure the leadership of the Combined Bomber Offensive. The commander of the 8th Air Force since it arrived in England in late 1942 was Arnold's old friend, Lieutenant General Ira Aker. Like Arnold, Aker strongly supported the strategy of precision daylight bombing no matter the cost to air crews. He believed that his B-17s could overwhelm enemy defences without the need for fighter escort. Aker even proposed stripping some flying fortresses of their bombing equipment to add extra machine guns in order to turn them into gunships that could support the bombers. Lieutenant General Aker proved to be inflexible and showed a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the fighter. Throughout 1943, Arnold grew frustrated that Aker's solution to mounting losses was to simply request more bombers and more air crews. While RAF Bomber Command continued to develop innovative tactics and technology, such as G, Obo, and H2S radar, the 8th Air Force used the same basic tactics for the entirety of 1943. Whenever a bomber stream did require a fighter escort, Aker instructed the fighters to provide close escort, essentially shackling them to the bombers and making the fighters less effective at driving off enemy aircraft. However, Aker also gradually evolved in his view on strategic bombing. After Black Thursday, Aker cabled Arnold to request that every single reserve fighter be sent to the 8th Air Force. Unfortunately for Aker, his evolution had come far too late for Eisenhower and Arnold. As newly appointed Supreme Allied Commander, Eisenhower wanted to install his own hand-picked staff to lead the American component of the bombing campaign in preparation for Operation Overlord. The following month, the Western Allies met in Cairo to finalise the plan for Overlord. Here, Arnold unveiled his plan to restructure the American bombing campaign. He proposed the creation of the US Strategic Air Forces in Europe, which would unite all USAAF Air Forces in Europe under one leader while remaining independent of the RAF. This new position would also unshackle the Air Forces from US Army Command, eventually setting the stage for a fully independent US Air Force. Eisenhower and Arnold were in complete agreement on who should command this new post. Lieutenant General Carl Spatz. Spatz had become commander of the 15th Air Force in the Mediterranean theatre, and his strategic acumen was universally respected by both the Americans and the British. Acting on his recommendation, Eisenhower chose Major General Jimmy Doolittle as the new commander of the 8th Air Force. Doolittle was an aggressive commander who had the right tactical vision for the strategic air campaign, especially regarding the use of fighters. Doolittle proposed letting escorting fighters fly far ahead of the bomber stream to take the fight to the Luftwaffe before they could attack the heavies. Finally, the weight of American industry was also able to churn out vast quantities of aircraft, which replenished the losses suffered in the first year of the bombing campaign. These aircraft were flown by pilots who were increasingly better trained and practiced than their German counterparts. Although the Luftwaffe was receiving plenty of new fighters, the Germans were falling behind in pilot training even as early as 1943. By February of 44, the Luftwaffe was forced to cut training time by 40% in order to keep up with attrition rates. By the end of 44, German pilots were receiving an average of 170 hours of training compared to 300 hours for American pilots. By February of 1944, the US 8th Air Force had fresh leadership, new tactics, better aircraft, 
and superior pilots compared to the previous year. The harsh lessons learned during 1943 had laid the groundwork for a resurgence in the American component of the combined bomber offensive, which was about to take on its biggest challenge yet. Operation Argument, or Big Week, would be the ultimate test to determine whether these changes would be enough to win the skies over Europe. Okay, so... A good tutorial on uh, the 8th Air Force and uh, also most likely what is going to be covered in this mini-series that we that is being called Masters of the Air. Uh, and there's a lot of lessons here, a lot to take away. There's a lot of things to understand. Uh, the first order of business, we can, we can say that you know, the first thing, I, I actually not in any kind of importance, uh, certainly, but the first thing is the P-51 Mustang. Uh, what was going on with the P-51 Mustang? The P-51 Mustang was a brand new idea. Okay, It was actually a grassroots effort, not the only one, by the way, but it was a grassroots effort. And it was a new idea in aerodynamics, primarily, and uh, uh, but initially it came out with a uh, underwhelming engine. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to put it, right? Underwhelming, uh, a poor performing engine, uh, which happened to be the Allison. Yeah, but uh, a test pilot, again, another single person. Uh, was responsible for uh, changing the course of history. A test pilot said, why don't we put the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine in it? And that proved to be a brilliant move, by the way. And it turned the P-51 Mustang into uh, a hands-down winner in the air. Now, the Merlin engine built by Rolls-Royce, they are still building engines, by the way, uh, and they're known for their uh, performance and uh, reliability. Uh, P fifty the the uh, uh, the Merlin Rolls Royce Merlin engine had a two stage supercharger. Now superchargers were kind of brand new ideas back then. There was a couple of airplanes that had two-stage superchargers, which enabled them to perform well at higher altitudes. Uh, that was pretty critical. And the the, uh, the engine that powered the P-51 had, this is the, the, uh, the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, had a two-stage supercharger. It was kind of hard to manufacture, but... Uh, uh, the British had the technology to manufacture. It's a lightweight steel. There was a steel alloy that they were able to uh, come up with. And so uh, building such a, a device to put on an engine was was uh, kind of a, a in and of itself a breakthrough. Also, the Merlin had more horsepower, uh, and it utilized high-octane fuel. In fact... Uh, the fuel it used, and this is not very well known, but uh, the fuel that the uh, P-51 used when it could get it was 160 octane fuel. Okay, so very, very high, ultra high octane fuel. And that enabled the P-51 to operate uh, extremely well, far better than anything else in the sky, certainly far better than what the enemy could put in the air. Uh, so the first order of business is uh, the the brilliance of the P fifty one. P fifty one also had the uh, had uh, the world's first uh, brand new wing design, which we call a laminar flow wing. Uh, that was the first aircraft to use it, and uh, we pretty much have adopted that. Uh, that kind of a wing design. It was a breakthrough wing design. Again, it's called laminar flow wing. Uh, it it went on to uh, become quite successful in 
other applications in other airplanes. I flew an airplane uh, that had the swept wing version of the laminar flow wing. All right, so we could say it was a swept laminar flow wing. That happened to be the F-11 Tiger, uh, which is uh, one of the uh, aircraft uh, that I flew. It happened to be the, a supersonic airplane. And so it was one of the two supersonic aircraft, supersonic fighters, uh, that I flew as a naval aviator and Navy fighter pilot. Uh, so the swept laminar flow wing was a breakthrough. Uh, the original P-51 with a laminar flow wing was, in fact, a breakthrough also. And uh, with this combination, which was really a winning combination if you look at it, the combination of the... Um, of the aircraft or the aerodynamics of the of this particular airplane of the P-51, made famous, by the way, in both Top Gun movies, uh, the aerodynamics coupled with a uh, marvelous and uh, certainly ultra-performing engine uh, brought about a winner. All right, this was a real winner. And then combine that with high-octane fuel and you had something that could not be defeated in air combat. So it was a it was a winning combination. But the most important ingredient here was the human operator. Okay. So uh the the skill, uh the heroics, uh the determination of the uh, of the fighter pilots, the American fighter pilots of that uh, period is uh, quite extraordinary. Um, the Tuskegee Airmen were part of that, by the way. Uh, they f eventually flew the P-51 Mustang uh, in the bomber escort role. Now, there's one other ingredient that had to uh, had to uh, emerge if you will or had to connect to this winning combination uh, there was uh, multiple things and this was critical the mission critical piece here was not technology uh, it was not uh, engine capability uh, it was not the basic skill of the pilot the the mission critical uh, element here was tactics okay the tactics had to change, and eventually the tactics did change. Okay. Who was responsible for changing the tactics of the bomber escort mission? Who was responsible? Well, there happens to be two people. That I, now, not just two people, but certainly... There are two leading figures here that change the tactics and therefore change the course of the world, the course of the outcome of the of uh, the uh, World War II in uh, in Europe, for sure. And that happened to be uh, Jimmy Doolittle and um, Tommy Hitchcock. Tommy Hitchcock was a colonel. Uh, he was involved in various aspects, but he was a strong promoter of the P-51 and altering or changing or modifying, yeah, a complete change of the tactics, the bomber escort tactics, all right? So Jimmy Doolittle, uh, most likely under the encouragement of Tommy Hitchcock, I would recommend that you read Tommy Hitchcock's um, uh, biography. Uh, he is uh, one of the unsung heroes of America. He happened to be a aviator. Uh, Tommy Hitchcock was actually started flying in World War One. He was a World War One aviator, uh, and he went on to. Uh, operate and fly the P-51 Mustang in the European theater during World War II. Uh, and he and uh, Jimmy Doolittle 
uh, and others got together and they completely changed the tactics. And so the tactics changed. And what and and, and the tactics were not just um, not just a you know a, a minor element. The, the by changing the tactics, uh, it resulted in something that devastated our enemy, which happened to be uh, Nazi Germany. It devastated Nazi Germany's ability to conduct air warfare in which they never recovered. Okay. Now, it wasn't about airplanes. They had plenty of airplanes. They went from 5,358 airplanes to 10,059 in the course of a year. So they were building tactical airplanes um, on a regular basis. What it devastated was by releasing the or changing the tactics and allowing the P-51 fighter pilots to seek and destroy, okay, which is what the, uh, the brand new tactics were, seek and destroy, okay, not just protect. So there was an offensive component to the tactical engagement. There was an offensive component to the tactics as well as defensive. So here we expanded the uh, what was going on in the airborne battle space from, offen- from defensive to both offensive and defensive. And by, by adding an offensive component to the tactics, what we were able to do is we were able to seek and destroy the enemy by flying in front of or ahead of the bomber formation. Seek and destroy the enemy before the enemy had even had a chance of climbing up to the bomber altitude and and shooting down or at least firing uh, there, um, in this case, it was firing their guns uh, on a uh, on a bomber or the bomber formation. Right. So the seek and destroy, the offensive component was a breakthrough idea. It was completely outside the box. It was something that everyone said was n- was was not going to work. It shouldn't. And they, and and uh, the bomber escort had to maintain its defensive posture, and uh, Jimmy Doolittle and Tommy Hitchcock said, "No, that's wrong. We need to go ahead and change it." And and we did right against a lot of opposition, by the way. And and that this is really the hidden mis- uh, message here. Okay, often uh, when you when you come up with a an, an out of the box. Uh, albeit brilliant idea, uh, often it's rejected out of hand. All right, and and initially, changing the tactics that Tommy Hitchcock was was uh, working feverishly to do uh, was rejected. Okay, but eventually, because of change of leadership at the top. And I guess you could say that it goes all the way to General Eisenhower. I, I you know, I, I, I guess you could say, well, if we didn't have General Eisenhower, we would not have won uh, World War II in, in the uh, European theater. And I guess you could say that, uh, if, you know, he's got, uh, uh, you know, General Eisenhower was was intellectually powerful individual and and supreme allied commander uh, was an appropriate position for him because he was able to perform extraordinarily well. Okay, so tactics. However, the the most important thing here to keep in mind is that none of this is done in a vacuum. This is all being performed in uh, in a highly lethal environment so lethality was very very high on the list the chance of mission success was uh was initially extremely low it got better over time eventually 
once we were able to actually completely annihilate the German Air Force, they were ne- never able to uh, to come back. Uh, then it, it got less and less dangerous, but initially it was extremely dangerous. So lethality was on the horizon. Uh, in the early part of the bombing campaign, uh, um, the success rate was only, uh, I mean, the, the survival rate was only 25%. Uh, it was, it was hor- horrific, and yet we had people willing to do it. So heroics was on display. Uh, every one of these, uh, especially those who, who did not return, are uh, bona fide, legitimate American heroes. Uh, they are heroes, and not just American heroes, but they are heroes to mankind. Um, and hopefully the Masters of the Air uh, miniseries will bring this out. I just want to make sure that everybody understands that heroics is number one on the list. This, the, the, the ability of these people, it just, it's unbelievable uh, that they were willing to do such a thing. And can you imagine being a tail gunner in a B-17 flying before they had fighter escort, flying unescorted uh, in the uh, uh, European theater during World War II. Uh, if that's not heroics on display, I, I don't know what is. I, I would say that these are, you know, in terms of uh, what has occurred in the course of human events, uh, these were the most... Um, heroic people ever uh, to walk on planet earth that's that's my position right um, and every single member of the uh, b50 uh, b17 and b24 bomber crews uh, yeah they eventually got the b24 liberator uh, in somewhere in 1944 uh, I think midpoint through. Uh, maybe early 1944, they got the B-24 Liberator. So the B-17 crews and the B-24 crews, um, that that was uh, heroism uh, on full display. And the uh, and the fighter ex- escorts of these bombers, again, heroism on display. Now. The attrition rate of the fighter uh, pilots were less than the bomber crews, but still, they were particularly high. Uh, the P-51 was a marvelous airplane, but it wasn't the easiest airplane to fly, nor the most forgiving airplane to fly. Keep in mind that the P-51 was was somewhere in the vicinity of at least 50 knots faster than the fastest enemy, but typically we're talking about 100 knots. So if you had to put a number on it, the P-51 was about 100 knots faster than anything that the enemy could put in the air except for the ME-262. Now, the ME-262 was actually a turbojet-powered fighter but that came very very late uh into the german air force and it it actually uh was was so late that it actually made no difference whatsoever it just happens to be a footnote in history that's about it All right so the p51 was 100 knots faster now just by adding airspeed it doesn't come with its own challenges and its own uh, things that have to be uh, dealt with. One of the things that has to be dealt with as we increase the speed is increased time compression. What does that mean? We, it means that the workload goes through the roof. The accident rate goes through the roof, too, unless we take care of it properly. And our ability to perform is seriously degraded because we don't have enough time. 
we basically don't have enough time to do everything. So we have to figure out, we either pull the throttle back and not go very fast, which of course is deadly in air combat. So we keep the throttle up, we go as fast as we possibly can, we earn, we gain as much energy as we possibly can, and we deal with increased time compression the best way that we know how. And that was my job as a fighter pilot flying extremely fast fighter aircraft that were that could operate beyond the speed of sound. This was the era of the Sonic Warriors, and I am a Sonic Warrior because I was on the ground floor of the supersonic era. Uh, again, our job was not to not do it. Our job was to figure out how we could do it under these extremely difficult conditions or these extreme conditions in which increased time compression was the order of the day. Increased time compression, complexity, and uncertainty prevailed, right? And, and that was part of our reality. That was a part of our airborne battle space. Increased time compression started with the advent of the P-51 Mustang. Okay. The P-51 Mustang was, like I said, 100 knots faster than anything else in the air, and it required a higher level of pilot skill. Fortunately, we had those skilled pilots. On the other hand, Germany did not run out of airplanes. Germany, during World War II, the Luftwaffe, the German Nazi regime, the Luftwaffe in Germany ran out of competent trained pilots. That's what happened. Once their pilots were gone, uh, the, the th that air force ceased to exist as a entity. Uh, it was just a just something on paper, but it actually didn't do anything. Didn't perform any any meaningful activity whatsoever. How's the time? My audio, great audio engineer, tells me that uh, the time is up for, and this is the completion of another Throttle Up Radio Show podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>